Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, writes this. He says, glorification is the final phase of the application of redemption. It is that which brings to completion the process which begins in effectual calling. Indeed, it is the completion of the whole process of redemption. For glorification means the attainment of the goal to which the elect of God were predestined in the eternal purpose of the Father, and it involves the consummation of the redemption secured and procured by the vicarious work of Christ. When, when then does glorification take place? It is here that we need to appreciate what glorification really is and how it is to be realized. Glorification does not refer to the blessedness upon which the spirits of believers enter at death. It is true that, that then the saints, as respects to their disembodied spirits, are made perfect in holiness and, and pass immediately into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Presence with Christ in His state of glory cannot consist with any of the defilements of sin. The spirits of departed saints are, as Hebrews 12.23 says, the spirits of just men made perfect. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up this truth when it says this, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Yet however glorious the transformation of the people of God at death and however much they may be disposed to say with the apostle that to depart and to be with Christ is far better, this is not their glorification. It's not the goal of the believer's hope and expectation. The redemption which Christ has secured for His people is redemption not only from sin, but also from all of its consequences. Death is the wages of sin. And the death of believers does not deliver us from death. The last enemy, death, has not yet been destroyed. It's not yet been swallowed up in victory. Therefore, glorification has in view the destruction of death itself. It is to dishonor Christ 
and to undermine the nature of the Christian hope to substitute the blessedness upon which believers enter at death for the glory that is to be revealed when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Preoccupation with the event of death indicates a a deflection of faith and hope and love. Romans 8.23 reminds us that, that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is the glorification. It's the complete and final redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer who, as Philippians 3.21 says, will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And therefore, nothing short of resurrection to the full enjoyment of God can constitute the glory to which the living God will lead his redeemed. Christ is the first begotten from the dead. He's the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. He is the firstborn among many brethren. This truth that glorification must wait for the resurrection of the body advises us that that glorification is something upon which all the people of God will enter together at the same identical point in time. There's no priority for one above another. In this respect, it is radically different from death and and the glory with Christ with which saints enter upon death. Each saint of God who dies has his own appointed season and therefore his own time to depart and be with Christ. We can see that this event is highly individualized, but it's not so with glorification. One will not have any advantage over another. All together will be glorified with Christ. Now, I paraphrase that a little bit. That's from Redemption Accomplished and Applied, chapter 10, on glorification by John Murray. I usually don't read large bits like that. But if you have received your understanding of resurrection and heaven, uh, if you've received your understanding of, let's just say, the afterlife from either pop culture, like movies and TV, or Brian Adams, or greeting cards, or some of Grandma's quaint sayings, then you might find some of those truths that I just mentioned a little disconcerting. See, even though the Bible is clear in many areas, and not specific in a few others regarding the life eternal, people still believe that, for example, dead people become angels, which is decidedly not true. Dead people do not become angels. Don't believe that. Christians are not demoted when they die. Angels are lower than human beings. They're not created in the image of God. And in fact, they long to understand the special relationship that the Lord has with His people because they're not privy to that relationship. I want to be clear about that because every time somebody dies, 
somebody says that. But that's not true. In fact, it is dead wrong. Christians must, the Christians face a much better eternity than being regulated, relegated to the realm of angels. Angels have no seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus did not go to prepare a place for angels. He calls no angel his brother. And the grace of God is not available to angels. I could go on, but that's not actually why we're here today. That's not what this text today addresses, and so that's not what the sermon's going to be about. That's just a little pet project I threw in there for you. I do, however, need to give you a, a little bit of a disclaimer at this point. In a book of difficult passages, today's text is a really difficult passage. I'll do my best to proclaim God's truth this morning, but we will ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand, and, and we will probably all scratch our heads together at some point today. But we trust that since this is God's Word, He has something for us. So let's read. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 35 to 49. We've been working through this letter for, I don't know, a year or so. And here we are in chapter 15. And let me read, beginning in verse 35, it says this. Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each, uh, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's stop and ask for God's help. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would give us what we need today. Help us to understand. Father, we thank you for your word, even the hard parts. And I pray that you would be glorified through us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a basic truth that the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, has been explaining throughout this chapter, throughout 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the basic truth. Without a physical resurrection, death alone remains. Without a physical resurrection, death alone remains. A physical resurrection is at the root of the Christian faith. Without it, we have no hope. 
But we do have hope. And so, uh, this, in this chapter, Paul has laid out for us uh, that which he says is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, verses 3 and 4. And as we've seen over the past several weeks as we've worked through um, this specific chapter, Paul has explained this statement, verses 3 and 4, and then he's offered proofs of the resurrection, meaning that he has addressed the facts of the gospel that have been secured by Christ's resurrection. And we saw the, the theological implications of denying a resurrection, followed by the reality that since Christ is raised, Christ is therefore king, and as a result, we must stop sinning. We must live lives uh, in holiness and, and in Christian conduct, Christ-like conduct. But for both the skeptical and the curious, the concept of the resurrection naturally raises questions, doesn't it? We all have questions about eternity. What will it be like to be in heaven? Will we see our loved ones? I've heard that in heaven, um, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So what will our relationships be like? Will I be thinner in heaven? We have so many questions. We could keep going, right? We have so many questions. And, and here Paul anticipates a couple of questions from the Corinthians. And, and as he intercepts them, we can see that, that from the tone of his answer, He's telling us that these are, these are questions from his critics. They're from those who are a part of the church, yet they have been going around saying there is no resurrection. And that's important because as Christians who, who trust in the Word and, and trust in the promises of God, we need to be able to ask questions without being called fools, like he does here. Paul does that here. He says, you foolish person, because the church itself was in danger of being led astray by these certain individuals asking these certain questions. So here's Paul's format in these verses. He anticipates two questions. That's sort of a, if we're following along with an outline. He anticipates two questions. He gives three analogies, and then he speaks of two men. Two questions, three analogies, and two men. So let's start with these two questions. Look at verse 35 again. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, even in a difficult to understand passage, what is clear, what should be clear to us, is that Paul is turning his attention to the nature of a specifically bodily resurrection, physical resurrection. He's taking away any argument that the resurrection is merely spiritual in nature. I hope that this has been clear as we've worked our way through this chapter. But one of the things that Paul has done here is he's linked together Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of believers. So by nature, they are the same thing. If Christ was raised bodily, then we too will be raised bodily, is what this chapter is saying. 
And his sharp response here, when he says there at the beginning of verse 36, you foolish person, that sharp response, as I said, it it indicates that these are, first of all, these are real questions being asked in the church at Corinth. And yet they're also probably being asked, likely being asked with a sarcasm that because of his answer, because of his sharp response, can be tough to miss. So you believe in a resurrection? How's that going to happen? Sort of the idea behind these questions. What are these so-called resurrection bodies going to look like? With what kind of resurrected bodies will these undead show up with? See, in the Greek mind, Corinth in Greece, in the Greek mind, which was so heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, etc., The Greek mind cannot envision a spiritual realm where real bodies exist. And so Paul rebukes these these doubters for their lack of true knowledge, and he explains what the resurrection of the body is truly all about and, and how all of this should be understood. And he begins by saying, you foolish person, Christians, Those in the church at Corinth who are sarcastically asking these questions, he says, you are without sense. Remember, he's talking to the Christian who, because they can't understand how the resurrection is possible, has abandoned any trust that it is possible. Do you see that connection? Because they can't understand how the resurrection is even possible, they say, then it can't be possible. In our day, these are those Christians who trust the science higher than anything else. Because the science says that bodily resurrection is a myth, it's a fable, it's not real. Christ rose in our hearts, and and so we, we should just love one another in the ways that we alone define love. The Bible calls that person, it's harsh, but the Bible calls that person a fool. Again, we're talking about those who claim to be Christians and are denying a resurrection. It's a fool, ultimately, who says in his heart, there is no God. And in this case, it's the fool who fails to take into account the creative power of God. And so Paul offers now, from creation, three analogies to explain this. So three analogies. The first analogy is of a seed and a plant. Pick it up here in verse 36, kind of in the middle of the verse. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, this reference to gardening or agriculture, it it actually should ring a bell to us. Because just up in verse 20, we learn that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so the analogy here is all connected. And he speaks of a seed as having a, a body. And he's using this word deliberately to make it understandable, right? To, to kind of link all of this together. So the imagery is of, is of putting the body of the seed, so to speak, into the ground so that it will bring forth a new and glorious life, such as wheat or some other grain, he says. And so this is just a kind of a simple analogy for a person's death and resurrection, right? 
But don't miss that what he's saying is that the seed, the seed itself is, is nothing compared with the glory of the plant that will come after it. This opens the way really for the next two analogies in which there are different bodies with different glories. But before we move on to the next two analogies, notice that Paul has set up now even a contrast between life and death. He says in verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And again, he's using that imagery. We don't dig up and reuse the seeds, right? They're gone. Once we've planted the wheat field or the flower bed or whatever people do when they plant things, they don't dig up that the seed is gone at that point. But we know that it's not gone, right? Something has come from it. That's what he's saying. And while we have some responsibility, he says two times there in that passage, you sow, ultimately it is God who is sovereign over both the seed and the plant. Even in the natural plant world, God is the giver of life. Look again at verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. God is the giver of life. Now, for the second analogy, Paul now shifts from the, from the plant world to the animal kingdom, except because humans are in this analogy and humans are not animals. We could say to the realm of the flesh. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Really, Paul is extending the analogy here. Because what he's saying is that different bodies exist for different settings, right? So just as the seed exists or has been created for a specific purpose, so it is with humans, animals, birds, and fish. Each were created by God to exist in their own proper realms, whether that's on land or in the air or the sea. So far we can understand these things, but let me bring this together. Seeds are created by God to be sown into the earth in order that they will then grow up out of the earth into the glory of a specific plant, like wheat. The seed dies and something better is brought to life. That's what he's saying here. So he's given this contrast between life and death. And then he quickly follows that with the contrast of of you sow, that is what humans put into the ground and and God's determined will. God gives it a body as he is chosen. Then he takes that and he develops this second analogy that illustrates that different bodies are created by God for different purposes and to live in very specific and different environments. So those with flesh are created to live and thrive in specific areas, land, air, and sea. And with all of this, God is sovereign, he's saying. So far, all of this points to the fact that, our, that the resurrected body, our resurrected bodies will be different in some way from the body that dies, the bodies that we have now that will eventually die and decay and turn to dust, Right? And yet, just like the seed, there's also a a continuation or a continuity between the flesh that we live in now, the body that you have now, and the body that we will have into eternity. See, See, the Scripture is telling us 
that our resurrected bodies will be appropriate for the resurrected life and environment in which we will live for eternity. That's what he's saying. And he comes to this next analogy now where he moves into the night sky and heavenly bodies. Look at verses 40 and 41. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So now he's comparing those earthly bodies, the animals, the birds, the fish, humans. He's comparing those earthly bodies with heavenly bodies. And of course, we need to remember how Paul is using bodies in this passage. He's talking about a, a tangible state of existence, right? Something you can, you can touch, you can see. So he begins by comparing this, the glory of the heavenly bodies with the glory of earthly bodies. So, so think of it like this. A beautiful field of sunflowers waving in the wind. A beautiful field of sunflowers. A powerful team of Clydesdales. A cloudless night sky over a northern lake in the summer. Each of them has a place. Each of them has a glory, right? So now just think of the heavenly bodies. The blazing of the sun. The glow of the moon. The twinkling of the stars. Paul is using the word glory here to, to mean radiance. And especially when we talk about the heavenly bodies, we understand the, uh, the different um, aspects of the radiance of each of those, whether it's twinkling, glowing, or blazing, right? So think of the radiance of your new grandchild. A puppy. The sun, moon, and stars on a beautiful day or night. They are different Yet they each have their own place in creation, don't they? Their own glory, their own radiance, their own beauty. Paul's point in these analogies is that our resurrected bodies will reflect a glory that appropriately reflects the image of God and the role we as God's people will play in the age to come. Remember, at creation, Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But in the fall of man, Romans 1.23 tells us that mankind in sin, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But in the resurrection, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 promises this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There will be something about the resurrected believer that will reflect a greater glory, a greater radiance, a greater brightness that is, that is actually the direct result of seeing God face to face. 
like Moses. Revelation 22, verses 3 and 5 makes this promise. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is really what he goes on to explain, beginning in verse 42. Let me read these next couple of verses. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, at this point, he sort of drops the analogies, although he uses the word sown several times there, so he's still giving us that idea of being put into the ground, right? And he's giving us four answers as to what our resurrected bodies will be like. So if you have that question, what will it be like? Here are four answers. First, he says they will be imperishable. That means that they will be eternal. They will be unable to be destroyed, not facing decay. This means, at least, that your aching back, or insert other aching body part here, will not be aching. You will, you will, you will no longer have to worry about cavities or diabetes. We no longer look forward to death will be imperishable. Second, we will be glorified, better reflecting God's image and radiance without the stain of sin and death. Third, he says that we will be raised in power. And this is set over and against our current weakness. This is gospel power. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what is the gospel? Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then fourth, he says, we will be raised with a spiritual body. Now, this is where he goes for the next few verses. And it's important to remember that when, when Christ himself was raised, he, he was, if we could put it this way, um, reanimated. <laughs> it's not quite the best way to put it, but you kind of understand that. He was reanimated. The tomb was empty, right? He walked. He talked. He felt, he ate, he had a physical body. So this spiritual body that Paul is talking about here, it's not a ghost. That's not what he's saying. Jesus had a physical body. Remember, he invited Thomas, um, who did not initially believe. He invited him to look and see, to touch and believe. He met the disciples and specifically ate with them. The tomb was actually empty. And John tells us that the, the, the burial cloths that he was wearing was left neatly folded. 
He wasn't there anymore. And in the resurrection, we will be like him. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We will be like him. We will see him and reflect his glory. And then finally, he brings up two men, two men here. Now again, this argument can be a little bit hard to follow, but there are five steps that Paul is making here. Let's see if I can point them out to you. So he says in verse 44, he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Therefore, verse 45 is the inevitable result. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, the first Adam was made for and was suitable for, uh, for the earth. And in Christ, we are made suitable for the spirit world, for eternity, let's say. Step two. There is a first Adam and a last, or ultimate is what that means, Adam. One is our ancestor according to the flesh, and in him we all face death. But the last Adam, the ultimate Adam, Adam means man, gives life. Not just in creation, but in eternity. See, the Corinthians have failed to understand that in the resurrection, their earthly bodies will be completely transformed to spiritual bodies. And again, he's not arguing that they will become vapors at death, right? Ghosts or something. But that the incompatibility our bodies currently have with eternity will be transformed just as Christ's was. And I will acknowledge there is a significant amount of mystery to this, right? There is a significant amount of mystery to this. The third step is in verse 47. He says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So the first Adam came from the dust of the earth. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 2. The second Adam, man, has come from heaven. The point of this is, is not that dust was bad or evil. That's what the Gnostics would say, that the flesh, that the physical world is, is evil. That's not what he's saying. God completed, his completed creation was, he said, very good. Think back to the beginning of this section and, and the seed. The seed that, that died, so to speak, or went to the dust wasn't bad. It had a specific purpose. It was necessary even. What he's saying is that the risen Christ bridges the gulf between the dust of earth and the eternity of heaven. Fourth, notice that Paul is treating both Adam and Christ as representatives here. 
That's why he even uses this first Adam and last Adam, or uh, he kind of changes that in the middle here to first man and second man. He's talking about Adam, literal, and Jesus Christ. And they are representatives of humanity. If humans take the shape, so to speak, or the, the form of or follow in the pattern of the first Adam, then we would say ashes to ashes and dust to dust, right? That is a true statement. Um, Christians will take the shape of the risen Christ in our eternal existence, okay? The last or the, the ultimate Adam sets the pattern for all who will be resurrected and, and given a spiritual body for our eternal home. And just don't miss this fact. When we think spiritual body, I don't know about you, but I think of a ghost. I think of the spirit. But Paul is saying here that our spiritual bodies will have a, a physical part to them. That there is a physicalness to our spiritual bodies. We'll be able to eat. Thank God. Because some of us like to eat. And we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Before we come to this sort of final step here, I want to point out that in other places, Paul doesn't get into this here because he's specifically talking to the church and those believers who are in the church and are trying to get their minds around the idea of the resurrection. But there are other places in the scripture that tells us that it is not only Christians who will be raised from the dead. In fact, in Acts 24, verse 15, we read this, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, there is a warning. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so it isn't either a resurrection, a resurrected eternity, or a complete annihilation, just death and there's nothing there just want you to think about the implications of that. The Bible says that we will all be resurrected. Some, so John 5, 28 and 29, some who have done good, meaning trusted in Christ for salvation, to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil, not trusted in Christ, rejected him, not believed on his name, to the resurrection of judgment. So think of the implications of that, of being, being raised in an immortal body to face God's eternal judgment. Think of that. Being raised in an immortal, um, not perishable body to only, only to face God's eternal judgment. This brings us to point number five, which is verse 49 here. He says, or step number five, I guess. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This transformation has not yet occurred. We shall also. It lies in the future resurrection. For now, we continue to bear the image of the man of dust. And I am guessing that most of us feel that at some point every single day especially if you're over the age of about 22. We bear the image 
of the man of dust, but one day soon we will put on the imperishable. One day soon the final death will be destroyed and we will live in glory forever. One other pet peeve that ties into this, it's just a little one. Sometimes when somebody dies, when a believer dies even, we use euphemisms instead of saying so-and-so died today. We say they passed away, they went to glory. They, you know, we use these other words that are easier on the mind. That's fine, but they died. We also have celebrations of life, not wanting to talk about death. But for Christians, we, we should be able to talk about death. We should be able to point to a, a coffin and say, here is death's sting. We, we see it and we feel it. We feel it in our hearts and our emotions today. But one day, death will be swallowed up in victory. One day we will say, we will mock death and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So our transformation has not yet occurred. It lies in the future. One day soon we will put on the imperishable. One day soon the final death will be destroyed and we will live in glory forever. We will not look forward to death. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to praise for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that just as he might be the firstborn among many brothers, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, past tense, he also glorified. Do you know why that's past tense? Even though it hasn't happened yet? Because it's done. It is as good as done, and we're just waiting for it to be completed. He also glorified. And it is for this that we wait eagerly and say with John at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord. We're sick of death. Come quickly, Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we sit here today and consider these things, and there's so much that we don't understand, so much mystery and what it means to be uh, yours and resurrected. It goes against uh, our natural belief. It goes against the laws of science. It goes against everything that ought to be true, but if you are who you say you are, if you are the almighty God, then truly all things are possible for you. If Jesus Christ died for our sins, if he was buried and raised on the third day, then these promises are true of us, even if they're hard to believe and hard to understand. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we come to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ. We come to remember 
that Christ died for our sins. We come to remember his body that was for us. We come to remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And yet, Lord, we come as a people who are filled with hope because Christ is risen, because he is risen indeed. And so we come, Lord, not on our own, not on our own righteousness or goodness or obedience, but we come because of your mercy and your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would feed us as you feed us from your word, that you would feed us as we, as we are united with Christ in this communion, as we eat and drink and so proclaim his death until he returns. And we pray with the Apostle John, amen, come quickly, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.